Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to John 20. John 20. There are three messages left, including this one in the book of John. John 20 this week. Next week we will have a two-part message in Corinthians. The week following we'll have a two-part message in John. And that will complete our series in John. Moving on to Ezekiel after that. The first Sunday night in October will be the Ezekiel book sermon. I don't know what I'm more excited about. The end of a thing or the beginning thereof. The end of the book of John or the beginning of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is going to be exciting and fun. It's also a daunting task. It's a big book. There's a lot in that book. A lot of strange things happening in that book. Uh, We'll see poetry. We'll see narrative. We'll see a lot of prophecy and vision. And a great deal that we'll have to parse through. We're in John 20, however, this evening. As we've walked through the book of John, we've seen various times in which Jesus Christ has spoken to His disciples. And as we've done so, we've sought to take that which He's spoken to His disciples and reflect it into our lives. And we're okay doing so, because even as we look at John 17 and Jesus Christ and His prayer to the disciples in John 17, He prays and He says that He's not praying just for them, but for all those who would come after them, who would hear and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through their words. And so Jesus Christ, as He teaches His disciples, uh, He does so with the intent, with the idea, with the understanding of all of those that would come, of all of those who would subsequently believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and would therefore as well become disciples. And so we're going to see Jesus Christ interact with His disciples again. Jesus died on the cross. He bore the sins of the world. He rose from the dead. We saw that last week, a message on the resurrection. This week, we are going to see the first real interaction that uh, we have between Jesus Christ and His disciples. Now, as we look at the Synoptic Gospels, we've seen, uh, we would understand a few interactions. Jesus Christ, of course, interacted with Mary. We saw that last week. He interacted with two disciples as they walked on the road to Emmaus. But now we see him interacting with those 11 disciples, 10 in fact, this uh, evening first, and then 11 afterwards. Those disciples that he spent those two to three years ministering with upon this earth. And so this evening, let's look at three lessons. Three lessons to the disciples of Jesus Christ that apply not only to the 11, but to you and I as well. We'll look at these lessons as they apply to the disciples and we'll seek to draw them out into our lives as well. The first lesson this evening, verses 19 through 21, learn with me that you are sent. That you are sent. Look at me in verse 19 of John 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, so said, excuse me, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. And they, then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. are sent. Verse 19 tells us that it is still the first 
day of the week. The same day at evening. So, Jesus Christ had appeared to Mary. Jesus Christ had appeared to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that same day at evening, He appeared to ten of the eleven disciples still alive. Judas, of course, having killed himself. Thomas, Didymus being gone. We'll see that in a little bit. So this means that it was only that morning that Mary, Peter, and John had gone to the tomb. It was only that morning that Mary had seen the risen Lord. But she alone had seen Him. The disciples were assembled. They had not seen the risen Lord. And they were in tremendous fear of the Jewish leadership. Well, why would this be? The tomb was empty. There was little doubt that they would have been prime suspects. Jesus Christ said He was going to rise from the dead. People understood this. The tomb was now empty. Who do you think would be the prime suspects to have moved the body if the body was moved? Well, these disciples. The doors in their room were shut. They had locked it. They had barred it. That was the implication. They were shut up in this room. They had locked themselves in. They were fearful for the Jews. What are the Jews going to do? What's their response going to be? How is this going to play out? Jesus was not in the tomb. Where is He? We've heard from Mary. Mary said that He's alive, that she saw Him. What's going on? They were confused. They were fearful. As they remained in the room, verse 19 tells us that Jesus came and stood in the midst. Now, there's nothing particularly special about this phrase as we look at it in the English or as we look at it in the Greek. It simply says that Jesus came. But the implication of this is obvious. The room was shut. The implication being that it was locked, that they were shut up. It's not probably as if Jesus just walked into the door. As we looked at the synoptics, what we, uh, what we understand here is that Jesus appeared. He appeared in the locked room. We'll see it again in verse 26. The doors being shut, Jesus stood in their midst. He appears to them. We understand it to be miraculous. And Jesus' first words to them were words they needed to hear. Words reminiscent of that which we just sang. Peace be unto you. Jesus had told them in John 14, verses 27-29. Remember, this is back in John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it come to pass, ye might believe. So within the context of Jesus Christ going away, going to the Father, He says, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. And Jesus Christ appears and the first thing He says unto them is, Peace be unto you. He wants them not to be fearful, but to be joyful. He wants them not to be in in a place of great fear, but in a place of great peace. Jesus spoke those words of peace in John 14 with this specific day in mind. The day when Jesus would ascend, uh, would, would rise from the dead and the days following when He would ascend unto the Father. To this, Jesus had told them, Peace I leave with you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. But He had also told them these things that when they came to pass, as He said in John 14, they might believe. And there is little doubt that it was those words, Peace be unto you, that reminded each disciple of what Jesus Christ had said and gave them the peace and the courage that they had lacked as they saw their risen Lord. 
Verse 20 tells us Jesus showed them His hands and His side, all of which were still pierced. Now this is one of those amazing realities which should not go overlooked. You and I eagerly anticipate the day that we receive our resurrected bodies. And as we anticipate those resurrected bodies, we think about all of those things, those limitations that are brought upon by sin that we will be free from. Free from the pains and the limitations and the blemishes of the mortal flesh. And it is true. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. He would go on to say in verses 50-54 this, Now this I say, brethren, that, the, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And so we see this reality of the corruption passing away and immortality and incorruption being raised. And we understand our resurrected bodies to be bodies of incorruption, free from the pains, free from the sorrows, free from the effects of sin in this life. And yet here is Jesus Christ standing before them with the nail scar still in His hand. With the piercing still in His side. Our resurrected bodies will be defined by incorruption and yet this man it would appear for all eternity, is bearing the scars of His sacrifice. It would appear that Jesus Christ yet retains in His nail-scarred, or in His glorified body, the nail scars on His hands and on His feet. The puncture wound in His side as eternal reminders of the price of our sin. Jesus came to bring them peace but not just a passive peace. He calls them to an active peace. Notice again in verse 21. He says unto them, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. He reiterates this call of peace. But as he restates the blessing of peace, he also recommissions them for service. The same way the Father has sent him, Jesus now sends them. It's not just a passive peace, it is an active peace. Now, what did the Father send Jesus to do? Father sent Jesus to fulfill the Father's will. And according to 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here we see the reflection of the Father's will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As Jesus Christ lived and ministered upon this earth, He lived and ministered with the understanding that it was not the Father's will that any should die, but that all should come to repentance. And so He preached repentance. He preached repentance unto the Jews. The Jews rejected Him. He preached repentance unto the Gentiles. He preached salvation. And then He went and He, he gave Himself for the salvation of mankind. The Father's will is the reconciliation of all men to Himself. And as the Father sent Jesus Christ to preach this good news, Jesus says, So... Send I you. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior in this room today, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are called to fulfill the same mission that Jesus began. 
As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And that message is a message of reconciliation. Paul would tell the Corinthian church this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-21. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, Be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we have been made the righteousness of God in him. We have been reconciled unto God. And then we have been given the ministry of reconciliation to go and preach the word of God so that others might be reconciled to God as well. As the Father hath sent me, Jesus Christ said, so send I you. You are sent. Second point this evening, you are empowered. You are not just sent, you are empowered. Look at verses 22 and 23. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. You are not just sent, you are empowered. Now these are a couple of Tricky, tricky verses. These are a couple of tough verses. These are verses that are going to make us say, what, what really just happened here? Verse 22 tells us that when Jesus had said this, when He had said, So send I you, He breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. The word breathe here is the Greek word emphusao. And this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It's a combination of two Greek words. It's a combination of a preposition denoting that which is going in or unto, and then the word fusao, which means to puff. It's a derivative of the word which means to bring forth or produce life. If we were to give the most literal rendition of what Jesus, of this word that Jesus used here, the best we can gather, it would mean to bring forth life by bring, by breathing into. That would kind of be the literal. Translation, to bring forth life by breathing into. Now, we can't take that too far. Sometimes the derivatives of where a word comes from don't always properly reflect what a word meant in Greek culture. So we need to be careful uh, using the structure and the roots of words to bring forth its implications. However, what we see happening here is him breathing on them and then saying, receive ye, commanding, receive ye the Holy Ghost. This is the word which the Greek translators of the Hebrew Old Testament used to describe the breath of God, that word fusao, with which God breathed into Adam to make him a living soul in Genesis 2.7. And now we see here Jesus Christ breathing on them and calling them to receive the Holy Ghost. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.45, and so it is written, The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So the question must be asked as we look at this passage, did the the disciples receive the Holy Spirit here? If they did, then what happened at Pentecost? What's going on? Well, 
it's tough to give you a definitive answer. In agreement with the pattern of what we see in this verse, going back to Genesis and seeing what Paul, how Paul links the two in 1 Corinthians 15, it's difficult to say anything other than the fact that the disciples did in fact receive the Holy Ghost here. But that causes a problem. Because we know that many of the things that the disciples needed were not given to them until Pentecost. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Remember that the disciples are interacting with Jesus Christ here on the night of His resurrection, the first day of the week. Jesus um, ascended unto the Father 40 days later. So there were 40 days between the day that He rose from the dead and the day He ascended unto the Father. And notice, beginning in verse 4, as the disciples assembled together right before Jesus ascended into heaven, it says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so God, Jesus Christ speaking to the disciples, speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, enablement for ministry as future tense. And this was some 40 days after Jesus Christ in John chapter 20 breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So that's why it's difficult to understand exactly what's happening here. However, we... we as we look in the book of Acts, we see that there's not always the direct correlation that we understand now between the belief on Jesus Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We recognize today, according to the authority of the Word of God, that the moment you, you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you receive the earnest of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the various elements of the Holy Spirit's ministry. However, in the early church on these first days, that wasn't always the case. Things didn't always happen that way. The filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, doesn't always seem to correlate directly with the moment of belief. And we understand that Acts was a transitional period and things were happening somewhat uniquely in that book. And so, if I were to give you what I understand here, from the Scriptures, I would have to say, based upon what we've read, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happened in John 20. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling for ministry happened on the day of Pentecost. That's as best I can understand it. However, I might be wrong. I leave that open. There have been good debates, men on each side, speaking about what they believe is happening here and what they believe happened on the day of Pentecost. But if we correlate this word 
to breathe with the idea of the quickening of the Spirit. Jesus Christ then spent 40 days teaching them. If they don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling, could they understand all of the things pertaining unto the Spirit? Or did they understand all the things pertaining unto the Spirit? Or did that not enlighten until the day of Pentecost? All of these things we see, we know that there are no contradictions in Scripture, and so to whatever degree we don't understand, it's a problem with our understanding, not with the Scriptures themselves. But we do see something unique happening here in 22. And I believe most likely it was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whereas the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit would come on the day of Pentecost. Jesus then said in verse 23 something else that's a little bit difficult for us. This verse has been the source of all manner of error throughout church history. He said, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. On the authority of God's Word, as we look at the entirety of Scripture... Jesus is not saying that the church has the authority to confer upon a man eternal life. He is not saying that the church has the authority to withhold eternal life from a man. Scripture is the best commentary on itself, and to say that Jesus is giving the church that authority is to deny the very teachings of Jesus Christ that we've seen throughout the book. Jesus has been teaching salvation by grace through faith for the entirety of His his ministry. Paul and Peter and James will teach salvation by grace through faith throughout the epistles. We do not see here salvation conferred by a church. Rather, what Jesus Christ is and seems to be saying is that the authority has been given to these disciples to be the official spokesman for the gospel around the world. Jesus was giving the disciples of Jesus Christ, the privilege of announcing the terms upon which a man can be forgiven for his sins. Now, this interpretation is perhaps not as evident in the English as it might be in the Greek when you look at the various tenses of the words. Jesus tells His disciples, whosoever sins ye remit, and then He goes on to say, whosoever sins ye retain. The verbs in the Greek are uh, verbs that indicate an action free from the element of time. It's momentary in scope. They have the authority at a moment in time to declare a person's forgiveness and salvation. Not to confer it, but to declare that they have it or to declare that they can receive it. However, the other two verbs, he says, uh, they are remitted unto them or they are retained are different tenses that imply an abiding state which is placed upon them. It's quite different action from that which he says the disciples have. And so if I were to Um, give an interpretation of what Jesus Christ was saying here in a clear and coherent manner, I would say what Jesus Christ, the, the authority that Jesus Christ is conferring upon the disciples here, and the authority that would extend to you and I is the authority to tell people that they are indeed sinners, that they are on the way to hell, that as we rest upon the authority of God's Word, we can tell them that, and we can also declare unto them on the authority of God's Word the means by which they can obtain salvation. You are sent. You are empowered. Third and finally, in verses 24 through 31, you are blessed. Verses 24 through 29 give the account of one of the eleven disciples who was not present when Jesus first appeared to the ten. This disciple's name was Thomas. They also called him Didymus. When Thomas arrived to join the others, they said unto him in verse 25, 
We have seen the Lord. Thomas's response, however, was of doubt. He says, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. For this statement, Thomas has received the name of Doubting Thomas in, her, in church history. Verse 26 tells us that eight days later, eight days after Jesus' first appearance, He appeared again into them in the room. They were again shut up in the room. He appeared and stood in their midst. And He again said these words, Peace be unto you. He invited Thomas to fulfill the conditions of belief that he had stated. To place his finger into his nail-scarred hands. To place his hand into Jesus' pierced side. Notice verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas did believe and cried out in verse 28, My Lord and my God. Jesus' reply, verse 29, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, yet have believed. We need to carefully consider these circumstances. Yes, Thomas acted in faithlessness as he stubbornly refused to believe the testimony of the other disciples. And we should not minimize, nor should we overlook this lesson a lesson that should become a warning to us. But what I would like to emphasize as well is that Jesus did not... Excuse me. What I'd like us to emphasize as well is that Jesus did what was necessary for Thomas to believe. Thomas sought for a sign and Jesus willingly gave it to him. And you know, as I think of this, I think back to the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. In that account, the rich man is burning in the torment of hell and he looks across the gulf into Abraham's bosom and he begs Abraham to send Lazarus, who is in paradise, back to earth to tell his brethren. Abraham's response in Luke 16.31 was this, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Jesus speaks here of men who have a heart of unbelief. A heart which has rejected the revelation of Jesus Christ and the testimony of the Spirit of God. Those that have this heart of unbelief will not accept signs. Even though one rose from the dead, they would refuse to accept the reality of Jesus Christ. Thomas was not in that category. Thomas was not an unbeliever here, even though we see this this idea of, he says, I will not believe unless I see his hands and his side. And Jesus Christ says, be not faithless, but believe. He's not an unbeliever here in the sense of unwilling or a heart of unbelief unto salvation. He is a doubter. Thomas's heart was not one of willing unbelief, but of physical doubt. And Jesus Christ was more than willing to do what was necessary to dissolve Thomas's doubts. And I believe that in many ways God still does this today. There are men and women around the world with hearts of stone that refuse to believe. They refuse to accept 
that which God has given to them in Revelation. They refuse to accept the Word of God, though the, the conviction of God's Word has been upon their hearts. And those are unbelievers in the sense that they have hardened their hearts against God's Word. But there are also men and women around this world with hearts that are willing to believe, but with some manner of doubt. And we see that oftentimes these people are recipients of events that confirm them in their belief. Your testimonies of men who have been confirmed in their belief in the foxholes of wars. That something happened and it was an event that caused them to believe. And we see them become true believers in Jesus Christ. Now I do not say here that Jesus Christ is actively appearing to men and women around the world. That He's showing up in pieces of toast and uh, appearing in images in the clouds and these sorts of things. But it is not contradictory or unbiblical for us to believe that God is working in supernatural ways even to confirm His existence in the eyes of those who have willing hearts of belief. Just as Thomas did, but had doubts. Now, these steps of revelation as Jesus Christ revealed Himself to Thomas in this way were not without some element of cost to Thomas. It would seem that Thomas lost out on a particular blessing due to his doubt. Jesus said unto him in verse 29, Blessed are they, excuse me, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus confers a special blessing upon those men and women throughout time who, having not seen the risen Lord, are willing to believe that He is risen indeed. And as we consider that, consider yourself. It means that if you are counted among those who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ unto salvation, you are among those that Jesus Christ says here are blessed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. That is the essence of faith. So, you are not just sent. You are not just empowered, but you are blessed on the authority of God's Word. This chapter finishes with the author's grand purpose statement. You may be familiar with it. We've quoted it many times in the past month. Why was this letter written? What was the purpose of the entire epistle of John? And many other signs, verse 30, truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. He says, I wrote these for the purpose that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but I didn't just write this that you might believe, but that in believing ye might have life through His name. This study of this book, the reading of this book is meant to do two things to the reader. Number one, it's meant to make it clear that we do not believe and to cause us to believe. Or second, it's meant to ground us in our belief and give us the utmost confidence that we have life through His name. So if we do not believe, it's meant to lead us unto belief. If we do believe, it's meant to ground us in our belief. And so let me ask you the question as we close this evening. How about you? You're a believer in this room. We still have one more chapter to go. But has this book helped you? 
as we think about Jesus Christ speaking to the Samaritan woman, speaking to Nicodemus, as we think about Jesus Christ saying He is the Good Shepherd in John 10. He is the vine. Abide in Me, He says in John 15. Has it helped you confirm your belief? Has it led you into a greater path of discipleship? That was the point. He says that ye believing might have life through His name. Jesus Christ said, I come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. Has this book, has the study of this book, has your time in this book, your meditation in this book given you life that is more abundant in Him? If it hasn't, there's something wrong. Because it ought to. Maybe you're in this room and you have not found life through His name. You know the conditions of belief. You understand that all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. You've seen Jesus Christ present the Gospel to Nicodemus. Give John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You've heard the Gospel given to the Samaritan woman. You've heard the Gospel given to the multitudes. You've seen the evidence of Discipleship as Jesus Christ is taught on discipleship throughout the book. If you have never accepted Christ, this book was written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name and life more abundantly. I hope that you will take the time to get that settled in your hearts and lives even today. We have one more sermon, a two-parter coming in the book of John in chapter 21. It's really, as it were, somewhat clean-up work. We're going to see something very important in the restoration of Peter. I thank the Lord for the time we've spent in this book. But let's not overlook this book not just as an encapsulated opportunity to learn and to believe in discipleship, but almost as a catapult as we recognize that we are sent, we are empowered to fulfill that commission, and that we are blessed for doing so. Allow this book to catapult you into service, to catapult you into your evangelism, to catapult you into your discipleship. Do you have a friend? Do you have a fellow employee, a co-worker? Do you have someone that you're discipling? You're sent, and you're empowered to do the work, and you're blessed for doing it. Do the work. Are there those in your life that you know are unbelievers and you've been able to give them the gospel while you're, while you're sent? You're empowered to do the work and you're blessed. Do the work. Let's be determined to do the work as we close this evening. Let's pray together.